Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the major works and ideas that help shape Western civilization. I'm your host, Gil Greco. Today I'm talking to Elliot Grasso. All of the tutors wear lots of hats around here. Elliot is, most of what he does has to do with sort of art, aside from sort of Western civilization that everyone pitches in. Uh, Elliot started when I was a senior here, so I didn't actually have the pleasure of having him in class. But uh, he is something of a musical virtuoso and has uh, has sort of extracted the musicality out of uh, students who have been in his class. Uh, and today we're talking about The Odyssey by Homer. Welcome to the show, Elliot. Thanks for having me, Gil. Pleasure. So you wanted to focus on book nine of the Odyssey, which is what the freshman and sophomore read in Western Civ. Why is it that students read this particular section of the Odyssey? What are the big questions and themes that make this interesting sort of for first exposure to the Odyssey and also for you? Sure. Well, um, book nine is kind of an interesting microcosm, as it were, of Greek cultural life. Um, the entire Odyssey is an, is an epic by the uh, bard named Homer, and um, it's considered as a bit of a sequel to the Iliad. And what happens in book nine is that big questions about, you know, how do how are Greeks expected to relate to others around them? It's a, it's a concept called xenia. Um, in the context of Odysseus running around the Mediterranean, trying to get home to Ithaca and, and things like that. So let's go back to Homer for a second. You mentioned that he was a bard. Legendarily, he was blind. What else do we know about Homer and sort of his authorship? Well, um, Many scholars think that the Iliad and the Odyssey both were transmitted orally. So these were very, very long poems um, performed live with perhaps some sort of kithra or stringed instrument before live audiences over, over many successive nights. Beyond that, his, the extent of his biography remains, I would say, largely a mystery. But I first came into contact with Homer and oral tradition, um, interacting with the work uh, called Singer of Tales, which was published in 1960. It's a work by Alfred Lord in which he explores sort of the nature of oral tradition, the complexities of it, the nuance of it, and, and how it functions. What in particular leads scholars to think that Homer's poetry was delivered orally? Are there certain features of it that you we could maybe look at, think about that would point us in that direction? Um Sure. Uh, there are certain formulaic lines that appear regularly for, for one thing, the wine red sea, Zeus storm bearer, the rosy finger dawn. These sorts of formulations are designed to fill out a certain um, syllabification, a certain meter given a certain number of lines of, of poetry. And they happen to come in very convenient spots that are uh, and sound both poetic and do the job of filling out um, the line. Just to be clear, Homer is, he has a certain, a certain poetic rhythm, mm -hmm. we might say, that he's trying to fill as he's composing this orally. And he has a bunch of sort of tools, sort of different stock phrases that sort of fill different parts of that meter so that he has 
an easier time sort of like filling out that line. Is there anything else that you want to comment on in terms of what we know about how that perf- live performance sort of works and, and sort of the, the people who sort of do similar performances or anything like that? Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, the work of Lord and Perry in Singer of Tales was done studying modern epic retellings in, let's see, uh, Middle Eastern Europe. So there's a tradition of storytelling done by a guzlar, who's someone who plays an instrument called a guzla or a guzli, and he recites long, very long poems um, in epic, epic format. And so um, Lord and Perry kind of make some interesting observations about oral tradition and how it works. Um, they write an oral, this is quote, page 13, an oral poem is not composed for performance, but in performance. Singer, performer, composer, and poet are one under different aspects, but at the same time. So the the bard, the rhapsode has in his mind a certain schema of events that have to happen. He has a certain set of stock phrases, formulae that he can put to use. And all of that has to be tamed and disciplined within a certain poetic meter and sometimes rhyme scheme. So he's got quite a lot of constraints going, but improvising within those constraints all the while, which makes it quite challenging and, and impressive that we have as much of we as much as we have. I remember C.S. Lewis made this comment that once you get writing sort of as the regular practice, it's much less expensive sort of <laughs> to the the individual performer to just write it down instead of having to remember all these formulae and sort of how, how you do it. And so unfortunately, like when, when you have a culture sort of adopt uh, sort of written poetry mm. that that sort of like, it it really disincentivizes this kind of this sort of poetic performance that you know Homer was capable of, and also you know these other these orders eth- eth- sort of epic improvisers mm-hmm. um, elsewhere. That is Homer. Let's let's set up then. Let's move on to talking about the story. Let's set up. Uh, where we are in the Odyssey when we come to book nine, which, uh, book nine is the very famous story of the Cyclops. So can you sort of set up for us what has happened in the Odyssey sort of thus far to get us to this point in the story so that we can then focus on, uh, the story itself? Absolutely. So the Odyssey is preceded by the Iliad, which is a story in which the Greeks lay siege to the city of Troy. Um, the, uh, Greeks leave Troy and Odysseus is among them, but he's blown off course and he ends up on different islands in the company of all sorts of different creatures and beings and, um, demigods and things of this sort. And right before we hear about the story of the Cyclops, which is basically told as a memory told in flashback, he washes up on the shore of the kingdom of the Phaeacians. So they find Odysseus, they bring him in, um, and they respect the rules of what are, what is known as Xenia. Uh, Xenia is a Greek hospitality concept that is evident throughout the Homeric epics. And essentially the concept of Xenia has, has some rules. Um, first of all, the person who is seeking shelter goes to an abode or a house or a dwelling of the same socioeconomic status, um, as themselves. Uh, secondly, they are taken into the home. Uh, hospitality is very important, but they're not allowed to be questioned or interrogated about their name, where they're from, what they're doing until they've been 
um, fed and clothed and bathed and had their basic needs met. So it's in the context of being in the Phaeacian court that um, Odysseus, hearing a bard retell, uh, sing a retelling of what happened to Troy, that he starts to weep and they ask him what's going on. And he says, yes, I will. I will tell you some things about myself. So speaking of Zania, this idea of hospitality, I think it's it's helpful to point out also what's happened in sort of the earlier part of the book is uh, we we start the book with Odysseus' son Telemachus. And Telemachus is trying to find Odysseus because Odysseus has been gone for a decade. And so he goes to the people who sort of last saw Odysseus and he goes to several different houses and he goes through this process of sort of getting there and then sort of meeting his basic needs. And then he gets to sort of lay out like, here's the thing. Can you tell me where Odysseus is? And we sort of get this, you know, we sort of get this sort of background to where Odysseus was. And then we finally catch up with Odysseus in book five. Mm -hmm. And then he, uh, you know, he's, he's getting to the Phaikian court. Um, and then he's telling this story, uh, which includes the, this, this sort of flashback of the Cyclops. What actually happens in book nine? What, what happens to Odysseus as he encounters the Cyclops? Odysseus and his crew end up on the island of the Cyclops. Um, before that, they end up on the island of the lotus eaters and whoever eats the lotus uh, becomes very apathetic and lethargic and aimless and, and no purpose. But then he's blown over to the island of the Cyclops. And once they land, um, Odysseus says, well, he's telling the Phaeacians this, once he lands on the island of the Cyclops, he says, from there, grieving still at heart, we sailed on further along and reached the country of the lawless, outrageous Cyclops, who... Putting all their trust in the immortal gods, neither plow with their hands nor plant anything, but all grows for them without seed planting, without cultivation, wheat and barley, and also the grapevines, which yield for them wine of strength, and it is Zeus's rain that waters it for them. These people have no institutions, no meetings for councils. Rather, they make their habitations in caverns, hollowed among the peaks of the high mountains, and each one is the law for his own wives and children and cares nothing about the others. So they wash up on shore. Um, they're looking for shelter. They're looking for food. They're looking for Zania, which is what any Greek person would expect during this, uh, during this time. They wander around to different caves and they find this one particular cave which has a huge opening and they, they walk on in. And, um, one of the rules of Zania that I forgot to mention was that um, it's not uncommon for the guest to receive a gift from the host. Thanks for stopping by sort of thing. So instead of waiting for the Cyclops or the host to come, Odysseus and his crew to sort of help themselves to all the cheese and the dairy products and the whatever that's laying around in the Cyclops cave. Um, and so they're being pretty bad guests, not unlike the suitors who are being terrible guests back in Ithaca who are trying to court Penelope and win her hand because they all think that Odysseus is dead and they want to marry the queen of Ithaca, Penelope, Telemachus's mother. So they're in this cave and then the Cyclops walks in and he is uh, just as bad a host as they are guests. And he starts <laughs> to brutalize and mangle and eat 
Odysseus's crew, and um, this does this does not go very well for them. Uh, Cyclops is like, so what's the deal? You're you're hanging out in my house. You're eating all my stuff. You're drinking all my my beverages. And they say, we are Achaeans coming from Troy, beaten off our true course by winds from every direction across the great gulf of the open sea, making for home by the wrong way on the wrong courses. So we have come. So it has pleased Zeus to arrange it. We claim we are of the following of the son of Atreus, Agamemnon, whose fame now is the greatest thing under heaven. Such a city was that he sacked and destroyed so many people. But now in turn, we come to you and are suppliants at your knees. So a suppliant would come in the house and grab the knees of the host and plead, you know, please just give me shelter and and take care of me. Don't kill me. If you might give us a guest present or otherwise some gift of grace for such is the right of strangers. Therefore, respect the gods, O best of men. We are your suppliants and Zeus, the guest god who stands behind all strangers with honors, do them avenges any wrong towards strangers and suppliants. So they're basically saying, look, we're your guests. You have to take care of us because Zeus has got our back. He's the god of Xenia and you have to do it. Do what we say and take care of us according to custom. And Odysseus continues telling the Phaeacians what he said. So I spoke, but he answered me. The Cyclops answered me in pitiless spirit. The Cyclops said, quote, stranger, You are a simple fool or come from far off when you tell me to avoid the wrath of the gods or fear them. The Cyclops do not concern themselves over Zeus of the Aegis or any of the rest of the blessed gods since we are far better than they. And for fear of the hate of Zeus, I would not spare you or your companions either if the fancy took me otherwise. So kind of a, uh, a, a, an, impious retort from the Cyclops and he eats uh, a couple more of Odysseus's crew. And so they hatch this plan. They have to get out of there because the Cyclops has rolled this humongous stone in front of the opening of the cave. They can't get out. And they're thinking, you know, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give him wine that's not been mixed with water. It was a tradition to mix water with wine or something else in order to dilute it a little bit, but they just give him kind of the, the full Monty. And, um, Interestingly, the uh, Athenians later regarded the Macedonians as barbarians because they did not mix their wine with water. They just drank it straight up, undiluted. So they give this barbarian cyclops, you know, the barbarian's version of the wine. He drinks it, of course, slobbers it down. And there's this gross description of all these like human body parts and flesh and stuff coming out of his mouth while he's, you know, belching and doing all this. It's, it's, it's fabulous reading. And so he passes out <laughs> from having uh, drunk too much. And they have this debate. They say, you know, should we, we should just kill this guy, run him through. And Odysseus says, no, no, don't do that. We'll never get out of here. We're not going to be able to move this stone that's like the size of, you know, 18 Volkswagens. We, we'll just blind him. So they, they take a big piece of wood, a log lying around in there. They sharpen it down. They heat it in the fire. It hardens up and then they sizzle him right in the eye and he totally he totally freaks out uh, homer writes so seizing the fire point hardened timber we twirled it in his eye and the blood boiled around the hot point so that the blast and scorch of the burning ball singed all his eyebrows and eyelids and the fire made the roots of his eye crackle 
That's some, uh, that's some, uh, some good words there. Yeah. Twirled is particularly <laughs> awful. Just, we just swirled it in there. All yes. right. Oh man. This is all Richard Lattimore's translation, yes, which, yes. Uh, which is great to read. Just as an aside, when we read the works of Homer in English, you have to sort of do this debate of like, what translation are you going to listen to? And one of the things that the Lattimore translation, which is the translation that we use here at Gutenberg, is particularly known for is he mimics that sort of repetitive mm. structure that, uh, that, it, that goes back to that sort of oral tradition, um, that you were mentioning earlier. Other translators decide to emphasize other things, but Lattimore really mm. keys in on that, the sort of repetitive, like mm. stock phrases. Anyhow. So he blinds Polyphemus mm-hmm. and then what happens? <laughs> well, then Polyphemus gets very upset, of course, and he doesn't want to let them escape. He's going to, he's going to eat them blind or not. Um, but the problem is that he's got a cave full of sheep that have to go outside. They have to be milked. They have to eat all these sorts of things. So he, he rolls the stone aside, of course, blinded. And what the men do is they tie the sheep together and they hide underneath the sheep. They, they cling on to the wool that's dangling under the sheep's bellies. And when the sheep walk out there, they're hanging Spider-Man like underneath the sheep. And so, uh, the Cyclops lets them out. They all get out and escape. Um, before that happens, he runs out shouting, you know, what something, something, someone has burned me. Someone has, has harmed me. And of course, Odysseus, clever Odysseus, as he's known in the Iliad and Odyssey, both says, you know, oh, my name is no man or, or nobody or in the Greek, hootis, which sounds kind of like hootis. <laughs> <laughs> so who, you know, nobody hurt me. And all the other cyclopses who are laws unto themselves are like, okay, well, you know, good luck with that or whatever. <laughs> and so the crew gets out under the sheep. They run to the shore and um, Odysseus can't resist shouting back. Hey, Cyclops. Hey, Polyphemus. Uh, it was not no man who blinded you, but it was, it was me. It was I. It was Odysseus of Ithaca. And, um, it's an interesting question. Students always ask, well, why, you know, why reveal yourself that way? I mean, you know, wouldn't you want to go into hiding after you blinded a giant like that? And, um, it would seem that one possible reason is that Odysseus is doing it for the Kleos. So when Homeric warriors would fight, they would fight for one or two of two things. Team A would be like the actual physical treasure or booty that you would get from beating the other guys and taking all their stuff mm-hmm. and their concubines and their gold and armor and all that stuff. And then the Kleos would be the things that people said about you in while, during your life and after you died. So Kleos was really as close to immortality as a Homeric warrior was ever going to get. So he wanted to make sure that Polyphemus wasn't running around saying that nobody blinded him and, and showed him up, but that Odysseus of Ithaca, Ithaca did that. Kleos is sometimes translated as like glory, yes. right? It's this sort of maybe fame. It sort of has this idea of like, this is the thing that people are going to write songs about mm-hmm. me for. I remember in our discussion of this, we, we spent a lot of time talking about, okay, why, why is he doing this? Shouldn't he just get off scot free? And, you know, Polyphemus curses him mm-hmm. and, and basically says like, it's going to take you forever to get home. <laughs> and, you know, it does. So there are sort of consequences to, to him sort of doing things in this way. 
And maybe we can come back to that in a second, but I want to go back to this idea of, you know, Zania, which is sometimes translated as like hospitality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why is it important to, to, why, why is Homer so concerned about hospitality? What is he trying to get at by, by sort of focusing on that in, in the whole Odyssey, but more specifically in this story? No, that's a, that's a very interesting question. Um, it seems to me that one of the reasons he's focusing on it is that he is trying to reinforce and outlay, um, the rules of social intercourse for, for the Greeks. So, I mean, civilization, civilized areas, groups of people need to know more or less what to expect of each other in order to have a baseline level of trust to coexist. And so one thing that Zania does is establishes that kind of baseline of trust whereby, you know, if I'm in a, a tough spot or in need, they will be hospitable to me, my hosts, and in like kind, I would be hospitable to them. So it kind of brings together a sense of um, shared culture. Um, it brings a sense of survivalism to the fore um, for those who are living in the Greek city-states and in the ninth century when Homer was allegedly out and about. Um, and it reinforces just what does it mean to be Greek and to interact with each other in, in an appropriate way. And this is displayed through these various episodes that Homer retells, seems to me. So when Odysseus and the Cyclops, as you were mentioning in this story, sort of don't follow the rules of Zinnia and are not sort of guestly and hostly and mm-hmm. how they're conducting themselves, what do you think what do you think Homer's trying to say? by sort of demonstrating what happens when you don't have people sort of following these rules? Well, that's an interesting question, especially about Odysseus. I mean, Odysseus is allegedly, apparently the protagonist of the Odyssey, and it's an epic named after him. Um, He's labeled as clever, but he's not a great leader, if by great leader we mean get all the men back safely. So... In a Homeric virtue sense, he does not discharge his duties well. Um, he does not protect his men. He does not get home on time. Um, his house is a total mess when he gets there. So it's, I one, it makes me wonder sort of, I mean, Homer, it seems, is trying to put on display, don't be like this in some ways, at least when it comes to your guests. He's pointing the suitors are bad guests. Odysseus is a bad guest. Penelope is a good hostess. She takes uh-huh. care of these these uh-huh. guys, even though they're they're not behaving themselves. Polyphemus is not is not a good host. So it seems to me to be a bit of an object lesson without having to be terribly direct uh-huh. about uh-huh. how to treat each other. You mentioned Penelope being mm. a good hostess, and one of the famous sort of incidents from the Odyssey is that she. She says that she can't marry any of the suitors until she weaves a shroud for her father-in-law. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, she, she, so she's making the shroud and then every night she takes, she takes it apart. So it takes her, you know, years and years to do this because she's just getting rid of all of her work mm-hmm. during the night. And finally they find out, and this is sort of a crisis point because they need Odysseus to show back up to sort of be her husband and sort of be like, Hey, everybody back off. 
I just, I just finished listening to a series of lectures on textile making in the ancient world. Mm. And it's interesting that Polyphemus is a, is a shepherd, right? He has sheep and wool is one of the main sort of things that have, you know, that, that they would have used to sort of make clothing out of. But Polyphemus doesn't seem to have a wife. So <laughs> do you think that there's anything there in terms of like, there's a kind of like poor management of resources or something like that, that like comes from this like lack of sort of fitting into uh, mm. sort of this, the, the correct relationship to guests and things. It could be, it could be. No, it is interesting because I mean, Homer makes a point of saying, about how the Cyclops, the other ones, um, do have wives and children and they're, they're the law, but Polyphemus is a bachelor, it would seem. Um, so it could be, though I would say it seems like he does have plenty of sheep and milk and all these sorts of things. So it, it could be, could be a subtle, subtle uh, point that I can uh, see that. Sure. Sure. Uh, you know, I imagine one of the things that this, these series of lectures on textile manufacturing was pointing out is like women spent you know, all of the time that, you know, when my wife is doing sort of household chores, she listened to podcasts, right? It's a very common sort of thing. But, um, like all your podcasting time in the pre-modern world is spent <laughs> spinning so that you can make threads so that you can make the clothes, like, cause people make all their clothes at home. Mm -hmm. So there's these vast swaths of time that are sort of spent doing this. Presumably polyphemus isn't sort of taking this wool and turning it into textiles right so it's like not. these sheep are just like shaggy and overgrown <laughs> and you know there's a kind of i just wonder if that's such a that's a that's a interesting possibility sure and you know sure. us us and you know now in the in an industrialized world we would never think of that because it's not it's not something that we practice but i think that is interesting to think about like would would a greek who is sort of watching their mom or their sister, you know, the women of the house who are, who, what they're doing is spending a lot of their time spinning. If they would think about, Oh man, these sheep, like, you know, they're not, uh, I think that's, <laughs> I think not that's, an, yeah, I think that's an interesting possibility that like that polyphemus is, uh, mm -hmm. he has these sort of available resources, but he's not availing himself of them mm -hmm. because, you know, he doesn't have, He's not, he's uncivilized, mm. right? And so there's, there's this sort of like, uh, Odysseus, despite being a bad, a bad guest and a bad host is sort of like, he, he has like kind of a perfect wife mm -hmm. who is very civilized and sort of like takes care of the various things, um, that, that are sort of her purview. Um, and, and we sort of see these examples of other people who sort of don't, who don't sort of, mm. you know, which, which certainly isn't all having to do with neighborliness or hospitality, sure, sure. but sort of fits into that sort of wider they're sort bad. Of Greek sort of view of how things ought to be. Yes. They're, they're, they're bad caretakers and resources and more things than more things than that even. No, I mean, that makes sense because it's like they have plenty of sheep shag to hang on to while they're escaping the cave here. So yeah, no, I can, I can see that. So let's, so you were talking about Cleos earlier. You were talking about how, uh, Odysseus sort of yells to Polyphemus, like, it was really me, <laughs> right? Uh <-huh>. I'm not <laughs> nobody. 
so it would seem then that you have this and because of his desire for glory Hmm. that Odysseus is sort of prevented from being a host being available to sort of take care of other people. Do you think that's ultimately sort of what Homer is, is sort of thinking through the Odyssey? Do you think that he's, you know, Odysseus is ultimately sort of a bad example in the final analysis, or do you think that it's like, is it more complicated than that? Or what do you think there? That's a good question. I mean, it's difficult to parse out for me, what Homer exactly is doing with all the characters Because, I mean, you don't, in my reading, it's hard to find, like, a really idealized character. Like, hey, kids, imitate everything about what this person is doing. Um, So, it's it's hard to tell for me if it is just Odysseus is a human and he's a particularly powerful human, but he's flawed and deficient and limited in all the ways that humans are, um, contrasted to the gods, which are extremely powerful, but, but petty and selfish and, you know, these sorts of things. Um, so I can imagine Homer sort of pointing at some things. Um, when Odysseus gets home, he takes care of business. He wants to do right by his son and he wants to do right by his wife. He wants to perform his role in society as king husband father well um even though he doesn't do a great job all the time as the guest in that sort of role so perhaps it's to draw attention to to the distinctions to the deficits um and also to the assets of of what he has to work with as as a character as a human yeah it may also be the case that you know this is this is sort of a flashback mm-hmm. and we open we open the story with him sort of or we open when we when we first see odysseus kind of being like i need to get home <laughs> right he's had all of these adventures and gone on had these opportunities for glory and uh to do various things but it seems like he's sort of cut it, it may be that it, at that point of the story he's realized like oh no i need i mm-hmm. need this thing that i've sort of been missing and so there's there's sort of instances of him earlier not having learned his lesson as it were and sort of being a bad mm-hmm. being a bad host and a bad guest and and the sort of resolution of the story is him sort of returning home and like trying to reclaim some of that stuff and so maybe maybe it's a, a sort of redemption mm. uh, of him rather than just like this guy's bad. Sure, sure. Is it is it a parallelism? Is it a foreshadowing? I mean, what you're saying reminded me of, you know, there's earlier in the book, he's a prisoner of Calypso, and Calypso seeks to make Odysseus her husband, uh-huh. um, we, which he could have easily succumbed to, uh-huh. and um, all sorts of things happen between them, but they do not get married. So uh-huh. he does not violate the essential role he has as king, husband, uh-huh. and father. He, he maintains those. Yeah. It's interesting that when... There, there's this very striking line when he's interacting with Calypso. He's like, yeah, you're immortal and going to be hot and beautiful like forever, but I want to go home, <laughs> which is just a very like in contrast to Achilles from the Iliad, mm. right? Achilles in the Iliad is sort of aiming to be just the best, mm. right? The mm. ultimate. He's, he's trying to sort of be more than human. And, and it seems like in, in part, one of the, one of the sort of meditations of the Odyssey is about being merely human, right? Mm-hmm. Odysseus 
has this opportunity with Calypso and, and other things like with the Cyclops to sort of be superhuman. And maybe he's tempted by that, but mm. it's sort of ultimately, it seems maybe that's one of the things that he's sort of aiming or, or, uh, Homer's sort of pointing towards is like, look, mm. this life, like, don't get too big for your britches, mm-hmm. right? Like, the god, if the gods notice you, right? If, if the Cyclops curses you, like, <laughs> it's not, even if you're, even if you have this sort of great chaos about you, right? If people are going to sing your name because you, because you pulled off this stunt of, of blinding the Cyclops and, and escaping and all of that stuff, like, that's not good, you know. People, they come at the gods come after you, and it doesn't, you know. So keep it uh, moderate. Keep it moderate. No extremes. Yeah, no extreme. yeah. This uh, hmm. there's a very famous uh, scene in the Iliad that's just talking about the shield of Achilles. Yes, and it's always contrasting sort of the warlike people that Achilles sort of typifies, mm-hmm. and people who are at peace but anonymous. Right. You can be super famous, super glorious, but like have your life just, just embroiled in violence. Yes. Or you can have this sort of like anonymous existence that seems to work out and be more at least human in, in Homer's view of things. Yes. Yes. Certainly. Now the, uh, the shield has always struck me as an interesting example. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it. It's always, it's always struck me as interesting that. The entire heavens and the earth are sort of wielded by uh-huh. a crazed, angry uh, <laughs> soldier. Um, I would be curious to hear what your thoughts are on yeah. this uh, this idea. Well, I I think so. To, to bring us back to the Odyssey, right? The Iliad is so much about that trying to be superhuman, mm-hmm. right? And uh, the the Iliad sort of has this this flavor of like. This guy has all of the, he's the, he's the most super powered person, right? He fights a river at one point, <laughs> you know, like there's a whole book of him mm-hmm. and he just, when he comes out, he just murders everybody. Like no one can stand against him. We've had books and books of, of these sort of heroes of Troy sort of being even with and, and kind of like sometimes giving the, the Greeks grief. And then Achilles comes out and there's no contest. Them down. Yeah. There's no contest. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of being superhuman and, and yet the Iliad sort of ends with this note of like, hmm. but I've missed something really important. Somber even. Whereas the Odyssey you know, the, the, like the, the remembered sort of scene, hmm. uh, is the scene where he comes back and he tells Penelope about how he built their bed hmm. sort of out of this tree mm-hmm. that, uh, he, he built their bed out of this tree that sort of grew out of, yeah. uh, the ground. Right. And so it's, it's this sort of picture of like, of not, of not trying to sort of attain that sort of greater yes. thing. Odysseus in some ways can't help himself. Because he's, he's, he's like a, yeah, he's like a, he's a hero. (laughs) But, uh, but, but I do think Homer wants us to sort of have this picture of just sort of being, Hmm. uh, content uh, even. Yeah. Being content with just being human. Absolutely. I could see that. Thanks for talking to me today, Elliot. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Gil. Great talking with you. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners. 
have you guys read the Odyssey? And is there anything that you guys are interested in interacting with us on about the Odyssey? You can let us know your insights by emailing us at podcast at gutenberg.edu. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gutenberg.edu. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time here on the Gutenberg Podcast. <laughs>